0: Okay, good evening everyone, and welcome to the NUS Middle East Institute's ME101 Lecture Series, where we aim to provide a comprehensive overview of the Middle East. Uh, My name is Ilyas Salim, and today will be the seventh lecture in the series. So now, earlier on in the series, we explored some of the complex uh, geopolitical entanglements in the region. And last week, we looked at some of the major political, economic, and developmental challenges uh, in the Middle East. So today, we'll be, we will be focusing on the challenge beyond economics. Uh, specifically, we are going to be looking at the topic of renewables, which is becoming increasingly important to the region as global energy consumption and production patterns change, and as the Middle East states move forward with their plans to diversify their economies away from oil. So I'm very glad to have with us our esteemed speaker for the day, Mr. Philippe Rose. So Mr. Rose has over 15 years of experience in the energy sector as economist and commercial advisor. He holds an MA in International Affairs from the Fletcher School and a licentiate in Business and Economics from the University of St. Gallen. So since 2018, he has been helping build partnerships in the renewable power generation space for a large energy multinational, including solar voltaic, uh, onshore wind, storage, and hydrogen. Uh, And his current area of focus is developing market access strategies for China. So prior to working in renewables, sorry, there's a bit of a... My screen just... Okay, so prior to working in renewables, Mr. Rose worked in conventional oil and gas, including seven years in Iraq and Saudi Arabia, a second D in gas public-private partnership. So Mr. Rose's area of interest is in managing political volatility uh, in environments where private investors face ambiguity, and value advocacy is a particular challenge. So just before we begin, I'd like to mention some house rules. So as usual, after the end of Mr. Rose's presentation, we will open a question and answer session. And we really welcome questions from the audience. So if you have any questions, please type them in the chat box to the MEI events team so they can forward the questions to me and I can relay them in the proper order to our speaker. So now I think I'll hand over to our speaker. Uh, Mr. Rose, the floor is yours.
1: Thanks a lot, Ilyas. Thanks a lot for uh, hosting me uh, again uh, in, in this uh, series. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure for me to, to join you here and, and to share a few, uh, a few thoughts, uh, not from the perspective as a, a, of an academic, but, but more from the perspective of a, of a practitioner uh, whose life uh, has, um, has uh, been a little bit um, kind of bouncing around some of the topics uh, that I'm going to cover and um, w- what I'm going to try to do now is, um, as best as I can, take a step back and, 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 and try to make sense uh, of these various events and, and uh, their implications for the, um, uh, for the Middle East. So um, the, the story I'd like to tell goes um, something like, uh, like this. If I um, take inspiration from the historian uh, Yuval Noah Harari uh, and try to take a very long view of um, uh, humanity's uh, progress and direction, there is something quite special happening uh, over the last couple of years, which is whereas human growth has been linked uh, to the consumption of uh, primary energy and biomass for centuries, a few years ago, this link went broken. And even with projected growth, the demand for primary energy is uh, is plateauing. And so with the Middle East as one of of the key producers of um, oil and gas, this tipping point clearly has a has an impact and it's reshaping the region, both because of the changes from a, from a supply perspective in terms of the producers, but also importantly um, to do with um, how and, 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 and uh, how this energy is consumed and by whom. So then I feel it's important to talk a bit about the role that renewables are, are playing and, and, and this this um, the story around um, electrification around the world and how that's impacting the Middle East. And in that equation of energy transition with renewables, the role of gas um, is is instrumental and it's crucial. and we need, we need to understand that a little bit. So after having um, shared that, what I'm gonna to try to do is to say, is to ask a few questions about, whereas in the past we used to talk about geopolitics and the importance for um, regional and international uh, power for a country to sit on, on resources like, like oil. Now that renewables are booming, is there such a thing as the geopolitics of renewables? Or, or is it just a, a, non, a non-issue um, as in the, in the words of um, um, Professor Stevens, it's like trying to talk about the geopolitics of carrots. There is no such thing. So I'm going to try to provide a few directions or a few themes about if we wanted to find geopolitics in renewables, where where could we find it? And, and I'll end with Um, uh, some of the tail risks from uh, what is turning out to be a bit of a chaotic uh, transition. So this is, my my hope is, is this will actually trigger more questions, make you curious, uh, maybe, maybe get you keen to read about it and speak up and maybe find out about your own energy, where it comes from, even ask yourself your your favorite brands. What are they doing on sustainability and stuff like that? So I, I, I don't have smart answers to to everything. Um, I'm 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 as I said I'm a practitioner, but hopefully uh, these remarks from my vantage point um, can can orient you uh, a, a little bit. And um, yeah, the, the more the more experience I have in this field, the the less I feel I I, I know. So. Before going going ahead with my, my story I, I thought I thought it would be interesting to to you um, if, if I gave a few words about um, the my, my life in the in the industry so I've, I've worked for 17 years in, in, uh, in the energy space um, and I feel that the the trajectory of my career, um, has, has been bouncing around quite a lot of these themes um, so I thought it could be helpful to to also uh, gi- give you a sense of, of what a career in energy uh, re- really looks like so I started out uh, around 2004 um, in in advertising um, uh, w- where I was I was trying to Uh, make it cool uh, for graduates in Europe to join uh, a big energy company. Um, And at the time, the mood on campus was quite about, it was not so much about climate change, actually, it was more about resistance and reluctance to big corporations and the exploitation of corporations towards developing countries uh, or towards communities. Um, I spent some time in Ireland, um, where at the time there was visceral opposition to an energy project there, and um, even violence. And then I I worked on um, uh, Nigeria, where at the time um, my role was about trying to come up with um, attractive propositions for the Nigerian government on what to do with their gas and it was about should is it better for the government to monetize its gas by exporting it or um to develop a domestic industry um and 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 uh, and, um, and already at the time i could i started asking myself questions about what is what is better what is is an export-oriented industry that brings revenue, fiscal revenue to the state. Um, is that better than a domestic industry that um, is subject to to product theft and 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 um, uh, environmental damage uh, and issues of that kind? And al- al- already, I started getting a hint that um, fiscal dependence can cause problems in countries that where the institutions are are fragile. And so after that, it was still a a head office job. Um, I spent about 10 years in in joint ventures, um, uh, working very closely with host governments in Brunei, in Saudi Arabia and in in Iraq, where it, it, it was about nurturing partnerships. In the case of Brunei, in the face of declining production, which meant that There's a lot of thinking about longer term. Uh, What's the future going to be? With so much fiscal dependence, can the country diversify? What should it do? In Saudi Arabia, it was um, a a gas project um, prompted by the desire to um, be more self-sufficient with gas and energy generation domestically uh, to preserve resources for export. And and, and already it was interesting to see that, although technically the project had challenges, there were a lot of other issues at play to do with subsidies of gas pricing for domestic industries that were hampering uh, the realization of a a progressive vision. And then in Iraq, this was really probably the highlight of my, my career. And the picture here is uh, one of my happiest moments there where we we organized um, the International Women's Day uh, in Basra, which is fantastic. Uh, As as you can see, we're all all smiling uh, there. And this was about, the project was about a public-private partnership to help the country uh, develop a commercial Iraqi company that could uh, produce gas to to help the country away from its dependence on uh, diesel imports and other import sources of imports for its uh, fledgling uh, power market. Um, So in 2018, I left that space to go into the renewables world, which was um, um, really uh, in full swing, um, working on on, uh, power, trying to understand power markets very far away from what I had done so far. Um, trying to understand um, uh, solar um, for corporate users and how uh, partnerships are done. Um, I worked in onshore wind uh, and then more recently um, I my focus switched to working in partnership with city stakeholders on um, um, dec- decarbonization. So I, I hope that gives you a sense of how my career was b- bouncing around. Um, so now if we Dive into the the macro uh, view, um, and for those of you who've who've read um, *Sapiens* uh, from from uh, Harari uh, that I love, um, I, I think there's a lot of value in in in, in trying to understand um, uh, the, the 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 daily hectic stuff uh, and put it in the context of 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 um, where's humanity going. So. I think what we can say if we if we want to simplify but but not too much is there's there's been a trajectory where human growth human progress GDP has been intrinsically linked to the use of primary energy so for about a century um, coal was uh, helping. Uh, the, the, the advent of, of the Industrial Revolution by powering uh, steam trains, steam engines, steam ships, uh, uh, producing iron and machinery. And that led to an explosion of of energy use for about a century, um, especially with the availability of, of, of very cheap accessible coal in, 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 in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. And then... Towards the turn of the 20th century, uh, around the time of the the First World War, um, oil started to be used more um, uh, in a a more dominant way. And a couple of key decisions led to its um, rapid adoption. We we can probably pinpoint that to the decision by by Winston Churchill um, to, to switch the Royal Navy. Um, over to, to, to oil um, which is a major, had a major impact both in terms of improved military power uh, d- due to the endurance of these ships but also it actually impacted the mission itself because it meant that you, you needed access to, to, to oil so the, the, the first world war is is m- morphed into a, a war about about access to oil to, to oil and then prompted mass adoption and lots of secondary industries like plastic, et cetera. So this was a century of oil. And now what's what's happening and what I'm trying to make sense of is even though you you you're you projecting a doubling of, of GDP uh, between 2016 and 2050. Global primary demand is, is only expected to grow about, about 15%. So it, it, it's really a decoupling for the first time in human history. And, and, and what's driving that is, is a mix of things, but it's it's the, the fast um, uptake of renewables is, is playing a major role, substituting um, fossil fuel uh, for, 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 for power generation, Um Uh, Not everywhere. In in, in Asia, um, coal-based generation remains and is even increasing, but it's offset by uh, decreases elsewhere. Um, And so, of course, and and the role of energy intensity in the manufacture of an incremental unit of of, of GDP. So that's the the long view. Now, if we try to uh, figure out what does it mean for the Middle East? Um, If if, if we look around the 1970s, okay, so the world uh, realized that it was tributary to decisions of OPEC on oil supply um, and on price in in a cartel situation. And this really strongly shaped US foreign policy orientation in the region. And th- this is really when people think oh, geopolitics, states, it's that. But, but around 2013, things started to change quite fast. And, and initially it was a supply story and then it became a demand story, I'll explain that. So one of the main factors there was the boom of, of US uh, shale oil and gas. Um, And and shale is, is, to simplify, it's the ability to um, produce um, oil from an identified reservoir uh, that is quite dense, um, where, so you know the oil is there, and all you have to do to get it out is drill as many holes as you can in that space, and each drilling you know exactly how much oil you're going to get, and you know exactly how much it's going to cost you, uh, but it doesn't produce very much. Um, so you need to drill a, a lot of them. Um, and back around that time where the oil price was $100 and above, it was very profitable to do that. And it enabled uh, the U.S. to just massively ramp up its crude production to levels that rivaled um. Russia, and, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and free, of course, the U.S. from its dependence on, on Middle East um, oil uh, imports. And so around that time, and I was in, uh, I was in Iraq, actually, that time, uh, funny enough, my, my, my job was to forecast oil prices. Uh, don't, don't ask me um, whether I got it right or not, please. Um, th- Saudi Arabia, as a dominant... Um, producer realized that it couldn't control price anymore um, because it didn't have enough uh, levers or or its share of production was too small. So the only thing it could control was its production. Um, And because it produces low-cost barrels or barrels that are cheaper to produce than um, most of the uh, other producers, it realized that it's only kind of strategy was to uh, keep producing and keep its market share uh, and then hope that it would drive other producers um, out of business. What it hadn't really anticipated is this, this wasn't just a supply story. There was also a demand, structural demand change with reduced energy demand due to the rise of renewables and due to the economic climate at the time. And so the result of all this um, was that there was a new dynamic that came out, which is the new market makers became the US, Saudi Arabia, and and Russia, and no longer, strictly speaking, um, OPEC, and producers were competing for market share, as opposed to pre-agreeing quotas to control price. And also, lo and behold, the buyers of all that oil with the U.S. disappearing, ended up being replaced by uh, East Asian buyers, with with, with China um, at the um, at the forefront. And so, some of the countries that had a fiscal um, dependence on on uh, on oil and gas, uh, like a, a large fiscal dependence, were particularly uh, hit particularly uh, hard. So Saudi first but also um, the country I was in at the time, Iraq, um, that was in the midst of reconstruction and rebuilding its economy. Um, Countries like the UAE were less directly impacted because they had um, less fiscal dependence, but the the platform of the UAE was still heavily um, reliant on, on oil and gas companies um, being based there. So they, they, they did take a hit, a in, more indirect um, hit. Um, so now what does all this mean for, 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 the, for the Middle East, right? So uh, I'm saying uh, tapering of, of oil demand, I'm saying renewables, all of that. But what, what, what does it actually mean for oil and gas in the Middle East? The, the, the truth is one effect of this has been to uh, cushion the price, because anytime the price dipped, um, shale went bankrupt and produced less, and every time the price went up, um, it spurred uh, shale to kind of kick, kick in, and the lag in, in shale is very quick, uh, 90 days from investment decision to drilling, so it, for, for for a while, until recently, it, it kept the price in, in a band. But also what it meant is that a little bit, I don't want to be too bold, but regardless of your view on the long term oil and gas demand outlook, you're still going to have, an, and this is a chart that shows um, expected demand between 2018 and, and 2035, with a forecast from 100 million to, to about 110 million barrels, the 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 Middle East is still going to be um, host to lower cost barrels, and therefore its share um, of of uh, of production is still going to remain ballpark figure about 30 percent of of uh, global production. So it's it's more uh, it's less an issue of nobody nobody wants nobody's going to want to buy Middle East oil. It's more about How how can Middle East countries monetize it? And so there's a couple of things. There's actually um, a lot of uncertainty on on that picture, especially the price picture. So a couple of things could um, massively um, uh, spur uh, higher oil prices. Could be um, underinvestment in oil and gas, with a lot of large investors seeking to, pivot away from from, um, from oil and gas, so, and, and no longer fund large CapEx projects. The, the decline of, of shale oil in the US is a risk, especially if you consider that a lot of that is funded by um, uh, capital markets. And so any increase in, um, in uh, interest rates in the US could wipe out the sector. Um, and And of course, uh, demand, unexpected demand growth, like uh, especially a- a- Asian demand. So th- that could create a price spike. But equally, you could you could have a, a downward spike where um, demand could peak um, early. A- and the reason I'm saying there's a lot of uncertainty is because these forecasts are quite uh, lumpy in the sense that A lot of it hinges on um, how much demand China is going to have. So if you have uh, a trajectory where China slows down because they focus on common prosperity, more of a domestic agenda, reducing inequality, all of that, and um, the supply chain issues we have right now um, continue, it is a plausible scenario, which has an outsized impact on, 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 uh, on this. Um, right. So in, in a way, you could say that the Middle East is safe in its market share. They will produce the last uh, barrels. But the more fiscal dependence uh, they have, uh, the rockier um, um, the ride and, and price, price volatility is not good for anybody, because if you're a producer, it means your fiscal revenue is heavily impacted, but also the level of investment that companies are willing to make is less. Um, And in a high price world, the incentive to diversify is less. And then when when the oil price crashes, the means to diversify are less as well. So you're a bit in a a catch, catch 22. And then on off takers. So for for buyers of Middle East oil and gas, swings in prices um, are usually an incentive to to look for plan B, um, to look for diversification of exposure to oil and gas, more renewables, other things. Right. So I need to spend a few minutes um, talking about uh, renewables, and 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 then I'll in general, and then I'll 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 zoom in on 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 the Middle East. So, what's happening is it's really a, a system change um, where the world is electrifying. So. If you look at the the chart, this is showing a significant boom in um, electricity generation um, between now and 2050. And almost all of it, or most of it, a large share of it, um, of this extra uh, demand is met by uh, by renewables. And it's driven by um, not only Um, population growth, industry growth, um, urbanization. It's also driven by uh, increased electric vehicle adoption and and things like that. And and also the availability of electricity, um, especially low carbon electricity, is, is actually increasing demand itself. So as you switch the system you actually spur additional demand for it. So coal and oil generation um, are on, on the global picture are, 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 are expected to decrease over the long long term. But, and by long term, I mean 2050. But gas generation, and I'll zoom into that soon, does remain... Uh, an in, in, in important part of the energy mix, peaking around 2035. Um, what, what we need to understand is that the, 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 the cost uh, of, of, and of new build renewables uh, is really going down a, an exponential um, cost reduction curve. Where, in more and more countries, new build renewables um, is actually cheaper on, on a on a kind of a total cost basis than than fossil fuel generation, even coal actually. So the, it, it's it's a tipping point in the uh, in the energy uh, transition. Um, and of course, there's uh, increasingly uh increasing adoption of net zero targets by by at a national level and at a at a, at a corporate uh, at a corporate level and i couldn't resist for this presentation uh I, I promise it's not a bet that i made with a friend to talk about bitcoin in an energy presentation but um it, it has and this is an illustration so hopefully it doesn't distract too much from my story but it, this is about showing that with increased electrification um there, there are interesting side effects that go on so bi- bitcoin mining uh, is very sensitive to energy price and of course you need internet access but but the, the primary cost driver is is energy and so what's fun about this this graph is that as energy prices have, have changed the the um the location or the co-location of um, um, hashing power has also moved. Um, And so when um, China banned uh, mining, uh, and I'm talking about Bitcoin mining um, recently, so it's about half of the world's hash power went offline. Very, very quickly, uh, the miners relocated to sources of cheap energy uh, in the US and, 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 and Kazakhstan, for example an interesting unintended effect so now what does this mean for the middle east so the middle east is also uh expecting significant energy demand growth um, through electrification through industry growth uh, and through population growth um, as well now whereas in many parts of the world um renewables uh, are are playing a significant role. In MENA, um, the the region starts from a very low base, like 95% of power generation until recently was uh, burning oil and gas. And so even though um, huge efforts are being made in MENA and GCC to boost renewables, because of that low base start, only about 10% of its um, energy consumption, or electricity consumption, sorry, will be met by renewables by by 20, uh, 2040. Um, so by 2050, it's expected to be about 35%. So, and, and this is a story that, that isn't widely known. But if you take, for example, um, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, producing about, um 11 million barrels a day Um, two or three of those are 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 uh, actually used for 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 power generation Um, so it it, it's it's actually as this energy demand is growing it's actually a scramble to maintain um export volumes in the face of this explosion in in uh, in demand so it's, 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 it's a race to try to keep up, but not only keep up, but beat that uh, increase in demand because the value of the export has, has um, until recently, had collapsed. Um, and the, 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 the reason it's important as well is the, the, it has a lot of knock-on effects this, this reliance on, on oil and gas uh, for power. It's obviously anything you burn domestically means you cannot export it. So there's a direct um, fiscal impact, but also there's um, quite large um, fuel subsidies in GCC. Um, so whatever is kept domestically for, for, um, for gas and, and fuel, costs uh, significant money from the state budget so for 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 GCC we're talking tens of billions of dollars and then there's of course the environmental impact which matters because of the net zero uh, Paris commitment and then on the positive side there's also a um, a a missed opportunity to develop a domestic renewables industry um, which contrary to oil and gas which is not so uh, labor intensive uh, the renewables is from across the the board in technology in manufacturing etc cetera, etc cetera. so this um, according to this uh, this estimate from arena there's, there's a couple of hundred thousands of jobs that could be created with a um, a transition okay having said that we need to talk about gas, and also it was, uh, it was a lot in the, in the headlines. So um, gas plays a key role, paradoxically, in the, um, in the energy transition, because in the transition where you, you add renewables to your energy mix, renewables are what's called intermittent where um, the wind can blow or it can decide not to blow. Depending on the weather, the um, uh, um, availability of solar can, can go from, um, from um, available to just non available. As illustration, there are days, even in the UK, uh, um, which doesn't have a reputation for being particularly sunny, that the whole country can be powered off um, renewables some days, yeah? so 100%, 100%. Um, and so that's where gas comes in, because gas allows uh, flexibility, because it can be turned um, on and off in a matter of hours, and that means you can have idle capacity that you kick in um, to account for, for, for fluctuations, and it's also uh, significantly um, less CO2 intensive Um, than than coal. So, in the absence of battery storage, gas is a bit like the missing storage. Okay? So, the consequences of that are only just now uh, sinking in, um, given the current energy crisis that we've had in China and in Europe right now. So, in Europe, the um, energy prices have gone through the roof a- and, and through a combination of, of, of factors, again, around gas. Like w- one was because in the Netherlands and in the UK, there was less shortage than, than, than normal for local reasons. We're not gonna go into that. And also Europe uh, was making um, greater reliance on, on LNG. Um, and Russian um, piped gas. And by uh, bad luck, um, LNG faced uh, also additional LNG um, supply, faced a crunch because of the surge um, in, in, uh, in demand from, from China, itself a function of weather and post COVID uh, economic recovery, issues with coal supply. Regulatory issues to do with um, the way power pricing is done in in, uh, in China, and uh, I would say ill-timed uh, environmental KPIs from some uh, government officials. That's that's one. Also, Russia was unwilling or unable to to increase its uh, delivery to to Europe. And let's be honest, there was also Poor planning by by uh, by European uh, uh, gas buyers. So this led to um, the the price hikes that we uh, that we've seen, and even um, energy retailers uh, going bankrupt because they 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 couldn't um, they couldn't procure energy to meet their uh, obligations uh, to their 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 uh, their customers. Right. Um, Okay, so now let's let's have a look at looking for geopolitics in renewables. And so, when we talk about geopolitics, we we really talk about um, accruing um, political power uh, from us occupying a certain geographical um, space to simplify. So a country with lots of um, produced uh, oil could derive political power by deciding um, how how to export it. And that, that's where the concept of petrostates uh, came up. It also granted such states very large fiscal surpluses that they could use for um, all kinds of things. Um, so now when we talk about renewables, where, where is that to be found? So what, I try, what I'm, what I'm going to try to do with these five points is give you um, my interpretation of the um, relatively scarce but, 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 but good literature that's coming out on this topic. And then I'll try to to apply it or translate it to to the Middle East. So, the first um, theme, I think, the most important theme, I think, is not a direct effect of renewables, it's an indirect effect, and it's the effect of um, fiscal risk on um, uh, states that are more dependent on on oil and gas for their state budget. So even though they may keep their uh, production volume stable, the prices are uh, swinging due to the factors that we we saw. Um, And this means that if I'm thinking about uh, Iraq or Saudi Arabia or Iran or Libya or Algeria, it means that there's less uh, buffer um, for them to um, maintain a social contract, which is still to do with patronage and um, uh, subsidy, direct payment, all of that in exchange for political legitimacy. And so we, we may uh, see interesting effects of especially if demand is slated to collapse, where um, such countries may want to monetize their hydrocarbons faster, either as a way of keeping market share or simply because they have no choice. Um, and so this is what we, we can call the, the, the kind of the, the, the last stand by producers or um, the literature talks about the green paradox so the rush to monetize before it is too late so this, this I think is is one uh, interesting indirect effect uh, that that is is worth keeping um, keeping an eye on um, keeping also in mind that um, China will remain a dominant oil uh, buyer um, uh, and, and, and this, of course, plays a role in the, in the, in the, in the Middle East. Um, the second aspect here is w- what we'd started talking about, which is the, the geopolitics of, of, of gas as a transition um, um, fuel. Um, so, a couple of years ago, we were envisaging in the industry that gas would be the new oil in the sense it would be a liquid market that you could buy and trade, as opposed to purely relying on on long-term contracts. And what's turned out is that this model doesn't satisfy the needs of of importing countries that require um, energy security, especially to deal with intermittent renewables. Um, And so China was able to call on contracts, uh, to mitigate the impact of this demand, uh, demand surge, leaving Europe in the cold. Um, it's also creating interesting new relationships. Like, for example, the U.S. and India are partly more aligned politically because the U.S. is a key uh, seller of LNG uh, to, to India. So that tandem uh, is, 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 is interesting. And then within East Asia, um, and I'm not even talking about the uh, political rivalries, but just there is a rivalry simply on access to gas. Because if we talk about China, South Korea, uh, Japan, um, uh, and India, to some extent, are all competing for contracts with the same sellers, uh, Australia, uh, Qatar. Um, so that geopolitical uh, aspect of gas in the transition is, is, is one that is coming more to the fore very recently. Okay. Now, if we try to look at direct, uh, the direct geopolitical impact of renewable, um, in itself, Renewable is is really like carrots. You cannot store the energy, assuming you've got lots of it. It doesn't it doesn't have any political uh, value. Um, however, I think a more helpful concept is the rise of um, what we could call maybe uh, it's, it's the best term I can find, and happy for other suggestions, but it's is the rise of geoeconomics, where th- th- there's a which, which is to do with um, the the the, uh, the control over trade balances between between countries, uh, and and it's giving rise to to new sources of of, um, of competition where technology dominance uh, becomes uh, crucial. Uh, to, uh, as does the the control over over supply chains. So, um, and and this is also about industrial policy. So basically, countries planning long in advance, where do they want to dominate in terms of intellectual property so that their country has a chance to secure uh, a part of the value chain in this uh, in this uh, in this space um, so and this even goes all the way upstream to the raw material where countries are anticipating um, the the continued reliance on on uh, on minerals extraction and the mining industry uh, to ensure the success of their domestic industry so uh, countries that are visionary uh, are, are, are investing in um, uh, copper mines uh, and, 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 and various other minerals to, to, to ensure um, uninterrupted supply for their, um, for their domestic um, players. So and um, This mining picture is, is unfortunately, is a a, a little bit of a tragic story for developing countries. I'm I'm thinking particularly African countries, because it means it maintains or it perpetuates a dependency um, where the relationship is typically um, um, mining investment against um, developing of domestic uh, energy projects. So it doesn't allow uh, these countries to Climb up the, um, the, the 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 economic value chain and, and become uh, self-sustaining in, in in their own in their own right. Um, so so to, to to illustrate this this topic about geoeconomics, It's it's interesting to see um, examples. So so Germany, for example, has quite early on decided that hydrogen was its thing. Um, so a lot of state funding um, be, behind. Um, hydrogen research. Um, China and South Korea have, for for very long, uh, had an industrial policy around low carbon innovation. For South Korea, it started in, in the nineteen seventies, uh, following the nineteen seventies um, oil shock. China is super interesting. Um, they they they, uh, they focused on 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 on, uh, on solar. Um, uh, with a lot of partnerships with foreign companies to kind of jumpstart their domestic um, industry, and they're they're about to become the, the largest R and r and D uh, spender, and they they did the same for wind as well. So uh, um, through subsidies initially, and then by fading uh, phasing those subsidies out, uh, the, the U S has not had a, um, a single focus on on um, on on R and D as an industrial strategy. However, uh, they've more relied on the internationalization of standards uh, to, to realize the value of their uh, their R and D. Um, some countries also practice uh, state-backed uh, patent purchase to spur uh, domestic domestic uh, domestic industry. Um, so th- 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 this, I think, is. Is where the action really, uh, really is, and 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 then the question is, what can the Middle East do? And, and it, it just raises the question, um, if if the Middle East was was, was able to, to compete, could it compete in things like regional grid integration, monetizing their um, um, the last uh, quantity of of, uh, of resources, of, of solar and wind resources that they have? So it, it raises that question. The fourth theme um, would be um, more, I I wouldn't really call it geopolitics. It's more like local or or structural. So with renewable power being intermittent, it does require um, balancing and and, and, uh, flexible generation. And some pairs of countries have done that Quite well, um, Denmark and Norway, uh, where one produces wind and the other one does hydro, and they can, they can uh, help each other out depending on um, uh, whether the wind is blowing or not. Um, and when the wind is blowing, then the other country can uh, uh, pump its, its water back up, its hydro, uh, so use it as, as a battery. Then you have places where it doesn't work that well, Um, there was um, uh, in the literature there's the example of um, um, because the European power grid is very well connected, you had unintended effects where Germany had an oversupply of renewables which um, meant that in Poland um, some of the uh, conventional power plants were too expensive uh, to be able to secure uh, a slot in the, in the market and, and were idle and, and lost money, which caused political tension. So there is clearly the potential for transitional uh, friction, uh, both from, let's uh, say, a hardware or infrastructure perspective, but also in terms of market design uh, failure or market design um, unintended effects, um, and so that that's one aspect to to look at is if um, the GCC countries go in the direction of the inter- integrated grid and want to export power regionally, um, what effects is this gonna is this gonna have? And then the last item on that list, um, this one is more longer term or, or hypothetical, but it's, it's, so I wanna leave you with this more as food for thought, is something that maybe not everyone is, is, is uh, realizing is um, electrification mean, means actually decentralization. Um, because as you include renewables, it means, consumers become potential producers of energy if they have rooftop solar for example or battery storage and so there's a whole bunch of market participants uh, buying and selling among each other offering grid services you have microgrids emerging energy communities all of them using digital blockchain Um, you, you can create trustless systems your 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 your, your, your electric car can, can be connected to your house and act as your battery, uh, so you have all of that stuff. So it, it actually means that the role of the state, which traditionally we thought the state is does a utility, is changing and could even become obsolete, where the importance maybe of cities is more important than national government. Um, And and so it really raises questions about what people start expecting from the state. And it it changes that that relationship. On the other hand, um, because electrification means connection and data, it generates a huge amount of data about individuals. And it also gives opportunities um, for states with an aspiration for more um, social control to have almost real time access to individuals life. And it opens um, doors um, to much more effective. Let's call it state management. Yeah, so on the one hand. you can say that in more liberally minded countries, this is an empowering direction. On the other hand, it means it could give more tools of um, kind of uh, coercion, I would say. Um, And of course, that question is open uh, when we look at the Middle East. So to kind of wrap up, my my little story, I think we can talk about a a tipping point where humanity is taking a different path in terms of what powers its progress and its growth. Um, And that is having a huge impact on the Middle East, both in terms of um, uh, the supply side and, 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 uh, and demand and consumption. And the role of uh, renewables in driving an acceleration of electrification um, will be crucial to manage uh, in the Middle East, either as as an enabler um, for regional integration, for technological uh, uh, kind of strategy and and, and, uh, empowering its own people, uh, or, or, or or actually, uh, the, the reverse. Get the role of gas is one to really watch, the wild card. And then, what I try to do in the in the uh, in the last part of the story is uh, l- look for geopolitics in the carrots. Um, and and the, the topic of geoeconomics, national technology technology strategy, competing for. For, for supremacy of certain spaces within, within that in tech uh, is in my view, um, something new, something to watch. And then we, we, uh, we ended with the tail risks from a messy transition um, with the impact on fragile states, with weak institution. We talked about the green paradox where hydrocarbon producing countries want to make the money fast. Uh, We talked about market failures um, and the importance of grid integration, uh, and then the impact on on, um, the role of the state, the role of uh, sub-national entities, cities, energy communities, um, and the risk of uh, greater uh, levers to Uh, exert uh, social monitoring and and, uh, social control. So before stopping, I'm going to do a quick uh, kind of um, snapshot of what I'm seeing as an industry guy could be uh, or are actually cool opportunities in this energy transition. Uh, Some of them you might know, some of them maybe not one which took me by surprise is the application of blockchain to uh, energy whether it is helping trustless systems for market participants to exchange energy without central authority and in a secure way or the tokenization of um, all kinds of things smart contracts to do with carbon credits or um, energy uh, energy supply energy demand Then uh, the Internet of Things, energy management, uh, optimization uh, of assets, uh, creating digital twins and various other methods to um, uh, help um, manage uh, a a ever complex um, integrated energy system. And also with the strong strong role of, of AI, um, to figure out ways of um, uh, doing this real-time matching between supply and, and, and demand, and some of it has to do with behavioral behavioral economics. So how to get people uh, to consume energy when energy is available and not consume when it's not available, and people and 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 and, uh, and companies. Then of course hydrogen in in even though there's a lot of hype around around it, but in areas of mobility, of um, decarbonizing um, uh, specific industries that cannot be electrified, heavy goods, there's a lot going on in that space. Um, Then quite a lot of activity around carbon credits and and nature-based solutions. So so how to, accelerate uh, the removal of carbon from the atmosphere before um, uh, some of the structural energy transition shifts actually uh, materialize. And then lastly, I I put this um, term of commercial integration. There's a lot of opportunities in really helping companies make the first step in decarbonizing, um, combining various offerings together, creating ecosystems, um, doing arbitrage in power markets between um, between what the, cons- the customer is prepared to pay in, and between what the uh, suppliers are, are willing to generate, and also a lot of activity going on in in, uh, in the data space. So even use of satellite data um, to better mod- uh, model and monitor and predict um, uh, emissions and things like that. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there and uh, um, open it it
0: up to questions. Anyway, thanks very much, Mr. Rose, for that wonderfully formative lecture. It was fascinating to get a practitioner's perspective on the industry and uh, the realities of it. So now we're entering the question and answer session. So again, if you have a question, please type it in the chat box uh, to MEI events. So again, don't send it directly to our speaker. Please type it to MEI events so that we can sort through the questions and present them in the proper order. So there are a few questions already. Uh, Let me read out the first question. There are three questions actually by Dr. Abhishek, but uh, what I'll do is I'll give them one by one so that you have time to answer it. Um, okay, the first question is, how does the Middle East give IP rights to renewable companies innovating, producing, distributing energy, and at the same time allow a competition in the energy market to keep prices low, to incentivize consumers to opt to use it?
1: You, you, you want me to start with that or you want to go through multiple questions?
0: Um, okay, I guess I could read out all three of the questions. So the the second question is, so oil was a hot topic in U.S. Middle East competition to absorb more of the global energy market and U.S. shale twisted scales in favor of U.S. So is the Middle East trying to get back that global market share with renewable innovation and production? And the third question is, so developing countries rely heavily today on coal, oil and gas. So how does Middle East, you know, how, how does how does the region balance its focus on this developing world, this lucrative market demand for oil, with the upcoming demand uh, for renewable, you know, for renewables? So those are the three questions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, let me share a few a few thoughts. I think maybe I'll start with um, the market share uh, question. So. Um, The the the, um, the way the Middle East producing countries preserve uh, market share um, is primarily through their ability to compete with alternative uh, alternatives from from a from a buyer's perspective. So, if I am a China buyer. Um, I want to make sure that I can minimize my my uh, my cost, but I also have a diversified uh, source of supply. And the Middle East has the advantage um, of enabling um, production of almost the lowest cost barrels. So when we talk about market share, it's about the decision between how much spare capacity am I willing to uh, sacrifice, or how many wells am I willing to shut down in an effort to try to um, uh, meet OPEC quotas and and hopefully preserve uh, prices. So um, the decision that Saudi Arabia did in 2014-15 was to Um, not only preserve its current levels of production, uh, but actually increase production um, as as a way to drive away uh, competition. So where we are at current oil prices, um, the issue of market share is, I would say, less relevant um, given uh, given the ability of of, uh, most most Middle East production to uh, to be actually realized. And truth is not there's not that much capacity outside of saudi arabia to really materially um, move um change production levels so most of that swing capacity resides actually in, in in saudi arabia um so now on on um on intellectual property um i think the, the, especially Saudi Arabia has identified, uh, as part of its uh, Saudi Vision, a number of areas where it believes um, it can it can uh, it can develop its own technology and and um, and capitalize on some of its inherent uh, technological and and uh, yeah uh, kind of uh, industry advantages and, and especially it's around ammonia. Um, so Saudi Arabia is betting heavily on uh, ammonia as a energy, as a hydrogen-based energy carrier that it thinks it can produce cheaply because it's an associated product of, of, uh, of the gas uh, gas production. Um, and so, w- what countries, especially like like Saudi, need to think about is which are some of these um, uh, niches in the energy transition. That it can it can compete with and and, uh, and d- develop proprietary uh, uh, IP create and it's especially um, it's more around um, spurring national innovation through subsidies through um, uh, c- creating sandboxes for uh, investors to come uh, uh, make it easy for, for for foreign companies to to bring in bring in staff and enable cross-fertilization so that there is a domestic industry actually um, picking up. So, so um, um, most of these countries are looking at how can they leverage their position in oil and gas to look at um, things like um, carbon capture and things like that for, 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 for clean chemicals or, 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 uh, or other fuels. So. In terms of um, uh, another advantage that they have is, they because of um, the, the high-quality resource in terms of uh, sun, they're able to command um, very very low uh, uh, prices when they when they when they bid for for large-scale uh, renewable um, projects. And so um, some of the Middle East-based developers uh, have been able to capitalize on that to then go, uh, go international. Um, the, the last question on coal, oil, and gas, I'm, I'm not sure I really picked it up. So, so I, I, I don't know if I answered-
0: what Would you like me to repeat the question? Yes, Ken. Can... Okay, basically, Developing countries rely heavily today on coal, oil, and gas. So you know how you know does the Middle East balance its focus, uh, you know, on this developing world because it presents a lucrative market, uh, and how does it balance that with you know the upcoming demand for renewables? Yeah.
1: So, if if you, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to answer that. Um... The, the the Middle East doesn't shape um, who buys the 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 oil and gas, so um, there will always be buyers of that. So for for, for Middle East countries, it's a, it's a, I mean no, no, no Gulf country is, is talking about going net zero and stopping oil and gas production. So th- th- there's there's no real link, I would say, between the, the export activities of Gulf countries and 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 developing countries per se, GCCs are 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 capitalizing on on the on the appetite of um, of developing countries for uh, oil, gas, and and, and coal. Um, and, and and if if we look at East Asia, I mean a lot, a lot of the existing demand of coal is, 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 is due to the, the, the large availability of low-cost coal, coal that, that, um, um, that, that enables um, India and China to, to sustain their, their domestic
0: energy demand. OK, thanks for that, Mr. Rose. There are a few questions now, so I'm going to pick them out. Um, OK, with the upcoming collapse of oil and gas, due to the adoption of you know, EVs and the collapse of the ICE industry. So what are your thoughts of, on the importance of securing and establishing battery production lines for grid scale and home battery storage to store the energy generated from renewables?
1: Yeah, so I, I, wouldn't, call, I wouldn't go so far as to talk about um, oil and gas collapse and uh, battery storage in the same sentence because we're really talking... Very different timescales. I mean, we've we've seen that in the in the case of of Asia, um, we actually have an increase in in in, uh, in oil and gas um, uh, demand, uh, e- even related to, to coal. So it's only um, at a time horizon beyond twenty thirty five that we start seeing a decline. For example, in 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 gas, um, the, the only way you could have something that you could characterize as a collapse. Would be if, uh, for example, the economic situation in China were to deteriorate rapidly. Uh, for example, so to me, I wouldn't really link these these two points together. But the, the point about storage is storage, and really, we're talking about all forms of storage um, are is, is absolutely crucial as part of the energy transition. So. If, if we look at Europe, the, the ability to, 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 to store energy um, using batteries is, is, is tiny, you're talking less than a percent or so, um, so but it, it, it is a booming sector. And the, the more storage you're able to build into the system, um, the more you can increase your, your reliance on, on, uh, on renewables and then start phasing out uh, gas. So the system of the future will be primarily um, renewables with wind and solar, some hydro and all of that, and, and then storage. There is, and, and let's not forget there'll be also um, market design to, to enable shifting of of, um, of d- demand and shifting of consumption uh, to minimize peaks and, and therefore make the system much more efficient, but storage also means uh, things like potentially hydrogen, because h- hydrogen is 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 a molecule. So y- you can put it in a in a cavern, and then um, when you when you need it, uh, you can release it and you can uh, use it to 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 generate power. And then when you have surplus renewables, you can use that to make uh, hydrogen by electrolysis and then refill your your. Um, your caverns, so that that would be the system of the of the future that would be um, that would be free of hydrocarbons. Um, but as per uh, IEA and, and other uh, uh, projections, um, oil and gas is going to remain uh, a, a a a reducing but still significant part of the energy mix for the foreseeable future.
0: Okay, thanks for that, Mr. Rose. I have a couple of questions here. So how optimistic are you about plans on the shared electricity grid in the Middle East region? So that's one. And the second one is, uh, will AI algorithms stabilize share speculation in the energy markets?
1: Will AI enable, what, sorry?
0: Will AI algorithms stabilize share speculation in the energy markets?
1: So on, on uh, integrated grids, this to me is an area of uh, massive potential. Um, it, it's a lo- the logical thing to do um, because it it allows um, uh, countries to balance their uh, strengths and weaknesses from a resource uh, perspective uh, and pool capacity so um, w- whether this capacity is to do with uh, gas gas powered or hydro or whatever it is so um, th- the more diverse country you're able to connect um, the, the more you're able to create resilient grids and and, and, and also minimize uh, minimize cost so the, the topic of grid integration um, uh, is very topical uh, for 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 GCC, um, and and on paper um, it, it it would allow resolving significant um, uh, issues plaguing the system from. Um, uh, over-reliance on, um, on, on gas to, to power shortages in the south of, uh, of Iraq. Um, it, it has all, all going um, for it. it. It requires... It, it goes really beyond um, uh, technical solutions, because a lot of these technical solutions are there, and, and they're economic as well. So it's more to do with um, political harmonization, uh, agreement on common pricing structures. How do you compensate um, uh, for for capacity services uh, and, and and all of that? Um, if if you look at uh, our region, ASEAN and Singapore, more, Singapore is doing more and more in that direction. So, for example, an agreement just uh, I think yesterday on a, on a on a connection with Indonesia for for green power. So so that if you take the politics aside, this is really the the way to go. Now, AI on stabilizing, I think you said share price of energy, so stock market.
0: Share Um, speculation, yeah. I
1: I mean, to me, this is not my expertise. Um, The the use of AI, I think, is much more relevant in the the finding ways of uh, steering uh consumption and and um and supply and and helping stabilize the 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 system but also in in um figuring out uh um, behaviors of of users uh through cities and things like that to 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 optimize uh systems so figuring out where to place infrastructure um uh figuring out how to, um, uh, be, be, because we, we're talking about um, exponentially complex system where every piece of machinery can be at, at the same time storing and using energy. Um, and, and so uh, figuring out how this all works, this is a space where AI, AI will, uh, will play, a, or is actually already playing a significant, uh, significant role.
0: Okay, I have uh, something of a technical question here. So could you explain why hydrogen would be a viable energy source uh, as when we would need to spend energy to obtain and store hydrogen in specialized tanks? So it might sound like a very inefficient energy source even compared yeah. to conventional oil and gas. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so hydrogen is, 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 a, is an energy carrier. Uh, so you have to make it. Um, and so, at the moment, um, there's two aspects. One is looking at, um, from a consumption perspective, how can we um, use hydrogen, where can we use hydrogen um, to replace um, the, uh, the burning of hydrocarbons? Uh, so there's a lot of activity going on in uh, heavy transport. Uh, And some mobility, but also, of course, in industry, like there's a lot of industries like cement and glass and others where uh, steel, where you need to generate a a lot of heat and and electricity is just not the right way for that. So hydrogen, if, if you can decarbonize in that way. Um, uh, if if you could switch to hydrogen, you can can reduce emission. But then the question is, how do you make that hydrogen? So at the moment, a lot of the hydrogen is is made as a a byproduct of of gas and stuff. And and so it it, it does emit CO2. So the the trick is to look at what can we do uh, to generate hydrogen in, in a clean way? And so that's why... Um, uh, there are quite a number of projects looking at using offshore wind to then, um, whenever the wind is blowing, to use it uh, to do um, uh, hydrogen by electrolysis. But you are correct that um, by unit of energy, um, you, you, th- there's, there's a step less if you, if you, if you connect your electric car to a, 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 a uh, your offshore wind uh, farm, as opposed to um, generate uh, offshore wind energy and then go through another step. Um, so you would you, you only do that um, for applications that uh, make sense, and the applications that make sense are fewer than 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 um, than you would read uh, in, in, in the press. There's actually only a very specific set of uh, circumstances where producing green hydrogen, as it's called, um, and using it in applications like industry and mobility makes sense. This is typically in industrial hubs. So if you are, for example, around Rotterdam, you're quite near uh, the North Sea where you can uh, produce uh, offshore wind cheaply, uh, and you're also quite near or near enough to then um, uh, connect that to electrolyzers uh, around the Rotterdam area, and that area is in immediate vicinity to um, the um, industry that we talked about um, uh, that is hard to decarbonize and happens to be um, located where there's lots of transport networks. So you have a lot of synergies um, that allow you to massively reduce your, your, your cost of clean hydrogen um, because everything is co-located uh, at, the, at the same space. And such projects um, allow st- uh, starting to reduce the, uh, the cost curves. Um, so you can start making much larger um, uh, electrolyzers you, you, you start having economies of scale, improving your supply chains and all of that. And you start uh, entering a zone um, where uh, you, you, can, you can compete with the alternative, uh, which would be um, uh, uh, using uh, diesel for vehicles and uh, buying, uh non-clean energy and having to have lots of carbon credit uh c- carbon penalties as a result so it, it requires mar- a market design to bridge the the cost gap in the form of carbon pricing and and uh and, and various other uh kind of market tools uh, uh yeah yeah so i, I hope that, that that makes sense but you're right, and maybe I should have started with that. You're right that we're not going to see uh, private passenger vehicles suddenly. Oh, it's going to be Singapore is going to be uh, just hydrogen vehicles everywhere. No, uh, electric vehicle is always going to be cheaper. Now, if you look at uh, maybe public uh, public buses, m- maybe for some routes or some countries, um, hydrogen will be economic. Or uh, in the marine space, um, maybe even in aviation, you you, you might you, you might you might see hydrogen. There are cities where the climate is very cold, so uh, electric uh, batteries don't work. And then suddenly hydrogen becomes uh, positive. So it's it's pockets, very specific pockets where where all the stars align, if you like.
0: Okay, thanks, Mr. Rose. We're kind of running out of time, so. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, okay, turning away from the Middle East for a second, uh, your last point about mankind's choice of what powers growth, you know, how do you account for China saying today that it would ramp up coal production and burning, even reopening closed mines? So is this transitionary? So that's the first question. And the second question, I can remind you of the question later, is you've mentioned gas. So Qatar and Iran sit atop the world's biggest gas field. So, what is your prediction for how this will reshape the balance of power in the Middle East? Given your reasoning that gas is a transitional fuel,
1: yeah. So, so on, on China um, gas, I think we can we can spend a couple of uh, seconds on on uh, on, uh, on that, and it's it's really um, a bit of an unfortunate, um, I would say, uh, combination of of of, uh, of factors um, where. Uh, the, the, and it's all of these factors happening at the same time. So the, the flooding and all of that meant access to, to coal was, 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 uh, was more difficult. Um, at the same time as demand uh, went up, uh, economic demand went up because of uh, post-COVID. Um, and, and, and there were also a few issues in the way, um, in, in the way power pricing works in China that, that, that caused uh, problems where, uh, unlike uh, deregulated uh, markets, uh, Europe, US, where um, um, power, so, so the grid buys um, power on, on a marginal cost basis, um, the, the, in China the, 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 there's a coal benchmark price which is sit, uh, fixed or set. And so this meant that if, if you're a, a, a coal producer, and your, your raw material cost is high, you don't have any incentive to, 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 um, to sell power because you lose money. So these were some of the regulatory deficiencies that China is addressing already, um, but, but we're not yet in place. Uh, and, and on top of that, given we're at the end of the political season, um, th- there was benchmark like kpis to do with energy intensity and absolute energy consumption which were going to be busted um and so uh that in was a that spurred um that spurred uh provincial officials or 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 uh to to shut to to, to do load shedding basically to tell some factories to to shut down but the the reaction um, now is obviously short-term uh, economic stability and all that trumps so um uh coal is, is 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 the last resort but what it's also doing is it's actually giving more leverage um to the central government to accelerate the liberalization trend that's going on already so basically to 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 um to liberalise some of the uh, pricing mechanism and, and move more towards market mechanism, especially in in this uh, this benchmark that we that we just talked about. So I, I think what we're seeing is temporary blips, but that that could actually make it give yeah make it easier to, to, to speed up um, the shift away from uh, from, uh, from 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 uh, from coal. Um, Right and then. You asked about uh, Middle East and gas and all that. So very clearly, um, the, the Qatar's position uh, as, a, as a, one of the world's largest gas exporters um, um, has enabled the, the, the country to, to, um, to, uh, to, to play its cards uh, from foreign policy perspective uh, extremely well. Um, it allowed it to uh, survive the, the embargo um and uh it allowed to allowed the country to play an i would say an outsized role in the the recent um uh, for example discussion with uh with afghanistan so um i think w- what we're seeing maybe is a bit of a climb down uh in the relationship within the gcc uh, compared to the blockade time and and largely i think it is uh, the acceptance by the gcc members of of, of uh, Qatar's ability to, to play its cards um, very well. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll leave it at that.
0: Okay, thanks so much, Mr. Rose. We are nicely at the end of our time today. So I'd like to thank you very much again for your wonderful presentation. And thank you to the audience for your questions, and also to the MEI events team for making all this possible. So just a shout out to our next event this coming Tuesday, which will be an interesting one because we will be hosting retired US General David Petraeus who will discuss the U.S.'s shifting strategic priorities. So also stay tuned to our ME 101 series. And next week, we'll be having our eighth lecture, which will look at the impact of climate change uh, in the Middle East. So thanks again for joining us and have a good day, everyone.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks, Mr. Rose.